<laughs> I'm just gonna do my usual don't don't knock the microphones. Classic last time. Don't knock it and you and then absolutely belted the table <laughs> as loud as you could. Shocking, shocking. <laughs> totally amateur stuff. Santi, are we sorry, are we good to go? Lovely, thanks. Oh, recording. Welcome back to the studio, everyone. Ian Jindal, Editor-in-Chief. Jamie Merrick at Salesforce. Annabelle Jack, Chief Commercial Officer at Made.com. Ros Lawler, General Manager at Crabtree and Evelyn. And Emma Herod, Editor of Internet Retailing. Hey, welcome one and all. So, we've been a fun today. So, let's kick off straight away with the fragrant option, <laughs> Crabtree and Evelyn. My mum was very excited when uh, I mentioned you'd be a guest on the show, but... As we know, that's just one of the many demographics you're approaching. So why don't we kick off and tell our listener Mm -hmm. uh, all about Crabtree and Evelyn. Yeah, so we launched in 1970 to many wonderful customers like your dear mum, Ian. God bless her. Uh, So launched with some values that actually really still resonate today. Products that were all about nature, uh, about botanicals, and we've kind of come full circle. So really quality products. We've kept our customers. Those customers now getting slightly older. And very discount driven. So uh, we're building up towards the summer where we're going to relaunch our brand and our products for a new generation of customer who will hopefully stay with us for the next 30 years. And so when you say you're relaunching, Mm -hmm. um, we've covered beauty quite a lot on the show. And we've had new terms like mastige for, you know, mass prestige products. Uh, We've talked a lot about uh, the importance of the ingredients, Mm -hmm. well-being, etc, etc. So where are you going to relaunch the product? Where is it going to sit in this, you know, celebrity-driven, Instagram-focused yep. world of wellness and beauty? So we're going to be very much about relationships. So we're um, kind of trying to get a balance at the moment between very hyper-local relationships and using the power of social media. So we're running a bit of a beta test at the moment uh, on Upper Street, where we've launched a, a new space, which is potentially it's an event space where you can also buy the products. And we went and knocked on the doors of the community in Islington and said, we're going to have a fantastic space what would you like to do with it and their initial response was uh, well what's the catch we said there isn't a catch you can come here to this beautiful space and do anything in it so they said all right then and then they all told their friends who told their friends so we've been running all kinds of events mainly aimed at women between 25 and 30 but we'll let anybody through the doors so we've done everything from art classes Every kind of yoga you can imagine, disco yoga has been particularly popular. Um, All kinds of making, crafting, we do clothes upcycling, we've made Christmas cards, Valentine's cards, we're doing drawings for Mother's Day this week. Anything to get people through the door, to get them talking to us, finding out about us, and about us finding out about them as well. So um, I'm sure you've heard so much about reinventing the high street, but really, you know, kind of going out there and saying to a community, what do you want here? What do you want from this space? has been absolutely fascinating. And we're kind of figuring out what works for the brand. So uh, we've been very open door so far and said, anybody come along and do anything. And we're kind of figuring out, well... Which of those events brings in the right people? Which of those events brings in the people who are going to be interested in our products and may become our kind of key customers? So we're working on that very kind of hyper-local level at the moment, but then also looking forward to July where we're going to do an international relaunch and say, well, how do we take these real quality relationships, events and moments and amplify that so we can extend it globally? We're talking about the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I live in Islington mm-hmm. and really it's many communities from... Yes. 
people in the city who've you know pushed up the prices, people who lived here for three generations, you know, from yoga teachers, yummy mummies, mm-hmm. you know, donkey jacket wearing Marxists. You know, we have everything uh, up and down Upper Street. So when you talk about the community, mm-hmm. I- I'm interested how you define the community. Is it one? Is it many? And secondly, how you go out and grab them? Yeah. So the community is many. And that's one of the reasons we chose that location. Actually, you know, we've tended to have central London and central city locations before, which bring in very big passing trade, lots of tourists, which is great. But we wanted something a bit more rooted with more regular people who would come and use our space much more regularly. And we're just figuring out which bits of those communities actually resonate the best with us. And there's a few, you know, so we've got younger students who are coming in, who are having a great time doing arts and crafts and learning together. We've got the yummy mummies coming during the day who are grateful to have somewhere to sit and perhaps do something creative with their children. So we're figuring out the ones that resonate best with us at the moment. Mm. And is, is it like a focus group strategy just to get some learnings for the kind of brand relaunch? Or is it something that you want to continue kind of going forwards and that actually your kind of your approach to retail is always going to be around drawing people in through events? So that's really the approach. So it's a bit of both, actually. It is really great focus groups for the brand. And we get a mixture of people who come in and say, oh, well, my mum, like Ian, my mum loves that. But then can we persuade that person that that product is also for them? And there's a bit of the heritage that actually really sticks with people because they all say fairly unanimously, we know it's a quality product. It's just not for me. And then we've got other people coming. I've never heard of this before, but I'm doing disco yoga and... It really fits with my disco yoga outlook. So it's a little bit of both, actually. Um, But really, it's then how do we take those relationships and how do we then make them into longer-term relationships? How do we amplify it on social? And working with some of those key community members, actually, and using their social networks to really amplify. And we found... On a a local level, that's working extremely well. I mean, we're actually overwhelmed with people who want to come and run events with us now. Wow. Now, uh, we don't exactly have a bulging mail sack here where we do get insults and if if there's one insult we get a lot it's that oh you're just talking about marketing expense that's not commercial Mm -hmm. so just in anticipation of that email again is this a marketing expense or is this integrated commercial uh with an roi so when people say ros Mm -hmm. have a piece of prime real estate in london Mm -hmm. enjoy is there no ROI, no metric? How are you assessed on the success of it? So the, obviously we need to make money. We're a commercial business. Uh, we have a little bit of a nice space at the moment where we are beta testing and we can figure some things out. But, um, you know, certainly in the next year, we need to be making a profit. We need people to be coming back regularly. And we'll have different kinds of customers. We'll have some who come in for gifting. We'll have some who we hopefully will come back every month that will be regular users of our products. So I think it's going to be quite, it's quite a complex model for us to actually work through and then to figure out actually and how do we amplify that on digital? And it's really a digital-first organisation. How are we going to turn that into an international business? When you say you were talking about discounting and stuff and mm-hmm. how the, the brand hasn't been working for you sort of recently, as mm-hmm. it were. So will this sort of sort that out, do you think? Or do you think there's a whole that's part of your positioning or repositioning that you might do? The repositioning is to put us back as a premium product, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But with a younger audience? With a younger audience, yeah. But you hired a new PR company last year mm-hmm. and uh, in the press release that they put out it said diddly 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 focus on appealing to millennials yeah so apart from the sort of obvious why uh, how is that going and what do you have to do to bring in those millennials 
So the events is what's bringing people in at the moment. And I, one of my slight concerns about this was perhaps the, you know, perhaps the events market was already oversaturated. I know that young people in Islington haven't just been sitting there waiting for us to turn up. There's a million things to do. But actually, we've been overwhelmed by the number of people who want to bring events and also bring people to do that with them. So it's really using existing networks to bring people in so that we can then um, form our own relationships with them. So that's all going really well. Our um, key hire, one of the most interesting bits we did was... Um, I worked at Tate before I worked here, was I hired a visitor experience manager. So it's looking at the blend of events people and retail people. So I hired someone who is used to putting on immersive theatre, who is used to hosting things rather than selling things. And uh, we sent him off around Upper Street knocking on doors, telling people about the space we had and being really creative with them and taking little seeds of ideas from people and turning it into something else. So actually that's been a really fascinating part is how do you blend that bit of events and sales? So we've got a couple of really great retail people as well. And we're kind of fine-tuning that balance at the moment of event space versus physical sales space. And how do you then balance that out by being with your customers and not making every conversation end up with, and you'll enjoy your yoga more with our special cream, or, um, you know, I hope you enjoyed the drawing, (laughs) your hands will be softer with our botanical... I mean, how do you stop yourself just ending up with every conversation going to yep. the sale? It is a really good question. And some events fit much better than others. And some people who are running the events can do it much better than others. So a couple of our yoga teachers are actually brilliant. At the end, they'll say, you know what, this cream is really nice. And do it in a kind of a natural way without it feeling quite so salesy. But people who generally come and had a nice time, quite often they haven't paid for it. People don't mind being sold to. People don't mind being asked to sign up on Facebook or have their picture taken. People are quite receptive to that once they've had a nice time, I think. Right, so it's not the fire festival of influencers. <laughs> uh, uh, now, we're talking about Islington as if everyone knows or cares. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for the non-Londoners, it's worth reminding people that London is, is basically a city made out of villages. Mm-hmm. So you're not the tourist drag, mm-hmm. uh, but still quite a shoppy area, mixed yeah. housing, retail, etc. But yet you were the Covent Garden store, you, you've had your flagship stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you grow, are you going to be looking for the villages, the Brooklyns, the Shoreditches, the bits of the 10th Island Dismal? I mean, where, where's the strategy going to go? Is it a strategy or just a one-off? Uh, No, it is a strategy and we are looking more at the village types of places. So uh, places that we're looking at at the moment, we're looking at Vauxhall, we're looking at Bermondsey, we're looking at Shoreditch and we will also be trying a lot more pop-ups as well rather than investing in long-term permanent places. Does the strategy also, uh, do you find other brands that want to collaborate with you? And if so, does that how does that work and does it help? And... Uh, so far, it's been good, actually. And we've, we've got a few partnerships that we're discussing for our relaunch in July, which will be uh, more high profile. But there are some that lend themselves really well to us. So uh, we've been working with, you know, kind of vegan chefs, clothes makers, lifestyle people that, that, that sit really well with the brand, actually. And they're very happy to share the space and promotion with us. Yeah, because the village thing sounds like it would be very popular. I yeah. Would say. yeah. Yeah. So then the challenge is how do you take that villagey thing and turn it into yeah, an international right. relaunch? <laughs> yeah. So that's that was my next question. How do you take that villagey <laughs> thing? <laughs> Can I come back in six months and tell you, Ian? <laughs> so, so um, do you have any international uh, locations? in mind already or is that uh, yeah so we're already an international organization we're very well known you know around the world so uh, we're quite popular the brand's very popular in china in australia in america so looking at the cities that we're already in places that we'll probably amplify our uh, physical presence in the next year would be shanghai and new york as we're already there and we're already fairly well established 
Nice. Well, look, if you need people to go and uh, Thank you. You know, participate in yoga <laughs> workshops, I'm sure we can, we can find some time. Good. Uh, Ros, thanks so much. Uh, just Thank before you. we let you off the hook, we're still early-ish in 2019. Mm. As you look at the rest of the year, uh, what's the exciting thing that's on your mind that you're looking forward to grappling with? So what we can't wait to do at the moment is get our new products out there because they're brilliant and they're absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and at the moment, we've, that's the kind of missing bit of our wheels. We bring people into the shops and they have a fantastic time and they look at the products and like, they're okay, but we really want to bring those new products out so that we can wow people with them. And so what are they? Are you going to tell me now? Or I'm not, not going to tell you now. <sighs> well, you will have softer hands and you will smell nice. Great. Uh, but we are expanding <laughs> the range. There's quite a lot of product innovation in there as well. Um, and we're kind of moving away from the place where people used to buy the whole of Clarins or they'd buy a whole set and that's what they were used to. It's actually very much more mix and match now. If you look in a younger person's bathroom cabinet, you'll find all kinds of different products. Nobody's loyal to a brand anymore. So we're actually making things with them purpose to be able to mix around with other products uh, and then also some quite exciting new things that might help you sleep that might give you more energy so a lot more kind of lifestyle products sounds like alcohol to me mm. <laughs> and well, well, they look different as well it was the they packaging do look different, oh yeah. there we go yeah, they look really cool great this is when we should all make little sort of hand hand rubbing sounds by the mic to I pretend we're, we're sampling you, yeah. it yes. <laughs> yes, anyway can i just say that there's no commercial transaction involved in <laughs> in this podcast so uh, thanks ros thank you thank you so much so hey let's swap focus uh, to annabelle so made.com emma you recently did an interview with Annabelle to celebrate the or to mark the expansion of the London showroom. So before I hand over to you to maybe pick up just the conversation, Annabelle, just tell us a little bit about uh, May.com for anyone who hasn't come across you. Yeah, so thanks for that, Ian. Um, I thought we were busy at made.com, but it sounds like reinventing a whole brand, you've got more on your plate, <laughs> Ross. But um, at made.com, we're obviously a digitally native brand and we are in the design space. So um, when I refer to design, we're actually kind of very much lifestyle brand as well. So everything from your kind of sofa to your bed, to your bed linen, to your tableware, um, to your dog's bed, to perhaps your bicycle as well. And that's been quite a transition actually over the last eight years um, since we launched as a company where we very much started off with kind of sofas. So hugely exciting. We're also now present in nine markets. So in the UK and then very dominant in the European markets as well now. So we've we've grown a lot and, yeah, excited by what we're doing. When I came to see you, you were showing me around the new showroom, which was a showroom rather than a shop, and the whole thing is about the customer experience. Do you want to explain to the listeners a bit more about what you've been doing, why you've expanded it, and how you get in your millennial digital customers yeah. into the destination? Yes, about um, a month ago, we launched our expanded showroom in Soho. So it was about 3,000 square foot. We've had that for about three years and we've just increased that space to 11,000 square foot all on one space. So it has got this incredible feel when you walk into 100 Charing Cross Road. So I think what we're, what we're doing in that space and actually a lot of what you were talking about kind of Ros, resonates with what we are doing. So absolutely, our audience is the millennial audience and by 2022, 50% of our target audience will be the millennial customer. So really important that we kind of focus on that. And like you, we really feel that they are after experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think we have achieved that with the kind of 
refurb of Soho. So kind of you walk into this beautiful space and you've got quite a few different areas. So there's a kind of design studio where you can get advice from one of the assistants in store that all typically come from a design background. There's almost a kind of museum-like feel to an area where we are really elevating some of the products from our kind of emerging designers um, and that we have discovered through our platform called Talent Lab. We also have partnerships as well. So, for example, at the moment, we have um, a partnership with Patch, who do great houseplants. Um, and, you know, we feel that's kind of important to have these add-on experiences to the shopping kind of experience, other than just kind of coming in to kind of look at furniture. You know, there's a number of different things that we're doing there, as well as kind of human interaction, which I think is probably the most important thing about coming into store. So actually being able to talk to someone if you want advice or being able to obviously see the product. We do also recognise that we will never be able to show all of our design collections. Um, we bring out about 50 new products a week. So very difficult for us to kind of be constantly refreshing kind of uh, the showroom. So what we're trying to also do is obviously use tech to enhance the experience when you're in store to make sure that you can see the kind of rest of the collections as well. And there's a couple of kind of nice um, kind of things we're doing there. So I think Emma, when we were kind of talking together, we also then went over to a kind of big, beautiful touch screen where you can kind of shop Instagram. Um, there's also a style finder to help you kind of curate your kind of shopping experience. You can also be looking at a product that you love and print out a postcard straight away with all the details on that kind of particular kind of product. Or you can press a button that calls over an assistant to to get kind of uh, you know, a conversation going and give you more advice on that product. So there's a number of things that it, on kind of the tech side that we are also doing to enhance that in-store experience. So how do you balance then the technology with the human experience or the human interaction? Because we keep being told that millennials, or they're all shopping online, they don't need to come to the high street. But you as a pure play have opened this showroom and I think you've got more more in line as well. Yeah, so I think you're completely right. The shopping experience definitely starts online for us and it also finishes online but I think there is definitely in the furniture kind of space a real need to sometimes touch a kind of fabric maybe to try out a sofa bed and see how that mechanism works um, so I think there very much is a place for showrooms it is an extension of our brand and I think we consider it very much to be a kind of marketing channel so I don't think we'll ever be rolling out a huge amount on the high street as it were but I think having a presence in our kind of key cities in Europe is actually a really important part of the customer journey for people today. But as you said, that human interaction with the brand definitely plays a role. So for us, actually, whilst the tech in store is important, actually the knowledge of the assistants, um, their passion for design has, has got to be kind of a priority for the business as well. Can you track your physical to digital sales? All of the transactions are still done through the website. Mm -hmm. Even if you're in store, okay. you're you're making that purchase yep. through the website. So we absolutely do track what is, I guess, placed through each store. Mm -hmm. But the team at the moment actually aren't incentivized necessarily to close a sale in store. Mm -hmm. um, there's no, you know, voucher code as it's yeah. as it were. But obviously, what we expect is that these great relationships that the uh, assistants should be able to kind of support will then lead to kind of a sale. But if not, then we can also see through tracking maybe increased sales in the area. So, for example, we opened Birmingham about a year and a half ago, and there is no doubt that you can see a really major impact from um, opening a showroom there mm -hmm. through web analytics. 
but you're using sort of web metrics for your store because it begins and ends online. So you're looking at engagement effectively because there's quite a big debate. You know, I'm sure you you get involved in it from time to time with people who actually sell stuff like normal yeah. on a shop and they measure it sales per square foot or whatever. And people are saying, oh, it's changing now because of all this experience stuff and all that. so but you're already doing it I guess you're measuring engagement and that's all you care about for the in-store yeah I mean we definitely care about footfall yeah. um, kind of in the store um, we absolutely do measure um, sales that are placed on our touch screens that are placed in store um, but absolutely we are measuring through web analytics a kind of a local sphere I guess to that kind of particular showroom and we can see very much an increase in conversion rates increase in average order values so you know the customer obviously because you know, they're local because of the delivery address um yes. but uh were i someone who'd been umming and eyeing about a sofa you know i'd looked online for my account details or my cookie and i come into the store i'm wowed i place the order there are you linking the persuasive effect of the store within that purchase consideration or is it less sophisticated than that or do you not think that's even important I think in an ideal world, we would be able to track a complete customer journey from how they discovered us through to them possibly going in store to then, you know, actually making that kind of purchase online, you know, relatively kind of difficult to do that in a in a small way, we are doing things like, um, which kind of makes me smile, but we have bought back QR codes, you know, as an example of that. And obviously, we are getting people to use their phone when they come in store, because most people, and I'm sure you've experienced this yourselves, you know, go in, in, into a shop probably holding your phone and very happy to research um, products on your phone as well. So, you know, if someone is logged into one of their kind of maybe social network accounts, mm -hmm. um, we know we do have that data on kind of what they have then looked up on a QR code, right. um, for example. But it's not quite all joined up yet. So I think that's definitely mm -hmm. something kind of um, for the future. You okay. also mentioned the fast-moving products. You've got 15 new per week. I guess that's a commitment because your audience actually wants and responds to that really well. So how do you, keep, if that's true, how do you keep it going? Because that's, you know, that's a big commitment, isn't it? Yeah, so we are you know, very much a design brand. It's always been the heart of our business. So we have a big in-house team called May Studio that um, design most of our products, or they are collaborating with designers, probably 100 at any one time. So from the very outset, our business model has always been about introducing new product weekly into our into our catalogue. And you're completely right. I think it is what our audience expect. You know, the millennial customer, you know, we're, we're identifying trends very quickly. Social media allows us to do that much more quickly today. And because, you know, it's real-time kind of feedback on, on, on what is trending. And so our, our design team, uh, yes, I guess, are kind of working always to kind of um, introduce kind of new products. Again, sorry to bring it down to uh, brass tacks or you know, the basics, but if you design something, you aren't committed to making it. You just have to be able to make it. Is that right? So you could float designs that if the customers don't like them, they can just float off. Or do you commit to production on those lines? What's the balance between you know, committing to stock and floating designs like sort of a Kickstarter for design? Yeah, I think so. Our in-house design team made studio, they will have identified gaps maybe in our collections or trends that they are wanting to follow. And we will design something and we will then prototype that, get that made and then look to kind of uh, sell that through made.com. If it then 
doesn't kind of sell as as quickly as we would have forecasted or hoped for, then we can actually pull that out of our collection. So there's very, very little risk for us to be able to do that. Mm. Um, separately, though, we also have this um, platform um, called Talent Lab where we are really going out to the design community saying, please upload your own designs. And that at the moment is customer curated and pledged on by our customers. So the more pledging a product gets, the more likely we will go on to make it. If a product doesn't get pledged, then we won't go on to kind of make it. Mm. So it's kind of a dual dual stream at the moment. So is that informing the products that actually come out from the made um, design team as well then? In in a small way, but I think there there is a separate kind of stream of 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 what they're dedicated to kind of designing and, and producing for the market as well. And then Talent Lab is a real commitment to designers that have already got kind of designs or are kind of maybe making design against a brief to kind of produce something that is probably a little bit um, more risky in terms of kind of design, but really kind of is something that the customer has said, that, yeah, I think that's a great product. And then we make sure that that does go into production. The other thing that we were talking about, of course, international expansion, because you had phenomenal growth last year. Yes. Entering new markets, Spain in November, was it? Yep, exactly. Yep. So sort of how, how's the Spanish market going and what's the plans going forward? Yes, we launched Spain in October um, 2018 and it has gone better than we expected, which is hugely kind of exciting for us. 2019 is about real international expansions. So we've got four new markets launching. Um, so Portugal, Denmark, Sweden and Italy. What about the fulfilment side of things? Um, I won't mention Brexit. Um, does everything come from the UK? <laughs> um, so in terms of our kind of supply chain, we um, firstly, when we design product, we then work with um, one of our network of manufacturers to then make that product for it, for us. And it totally depends on the material that we're using, the skill set that, that is required um, to kind of make that product. But that network of manufacturers is all over the world. So firstly, product is being made um, in the Far East. It's being made in kind of Portugal, Italy. Um, a lot of upholstery, for example, is made in the UK market. And then that product is shipped and we at the moment have two different supply chains. So one that is dedicated to Europe and one that is dedicated to the UK market. You know, at the moment, it is quite a streamlined approach to be able to serve a kind of the European customer today and a wider European customer in the future as well. So both of you have mentioned social in terms of Instagram influencers, in your case, um, Roz and uh You've got a massive group of people posting stuff online. How important is that social channel interaction to you? Is it is it just an accidental byproduct, or is it something that you really work hard at? Maybe Annabelle, you first. Yeah, I think social media is hugely important to us as a business. Um, we talked about having a millennial audience, and for sure, they are on Instagram, they're on Pinterest, um, and so we need to have a presence there. But the other thing is that actually those customers actually want to be posting kind of pictures of their lifestyle, their homes. And so for us, that's great benefit because you know, if people are proud of their home, they've got a made.com product in it, we want to see that product kind of out there or those lifestyle shots. So in the last year, I think we've amassed about 10,000 user-generated kind of photos um, that now exist on made.com that are showing off, you know, one of our beautiful products in a in someone's home that has got a kind of very eclectic look or maybe a modern look or a traditional look. So it really can inspire other customers mm. as well. So I think it's a really, really big focus. Um, and this year, actually, we're very 
much kind of building a team around kind of working much more on the social media side as well. Interesting. Does, does that play Very out? Similar, in, yeah. yeah. Does that? Sorry, just ask you about yours. Does it play out into a loyalty scheme of any, of any kind, or do you not actually need one because it's kind of self-perpetuating? Yeah, at the moment it is actually self-perpetuating, but I think we will see huge amounts of changes in this kind of um, area in the future, and I think we'll need to be smart about how we continue to kind of work with social media. Mm. And uh, you're picking up on social media as well. Is that something that? Uh, you're investing in or absolutely just very similar uh pinterest and instagram are both very big for us but obviously like any business you have to be a little bit cautious about giving your whole business over to instagram which can change its rules and the way it operates so you know it's how you then get that into your own crm system and, and um, mm. make your own relationships with people and we've talked a lot about millennials and admittedly they're now getting older having jobs spending more but are you looking beyond that to the Gen Z or post-millennials or whatever we're going to call them next. Uh, do you see a shift there or is it still very much we're busy with millennials and we'll deal with the next lot later? So I think for made.com, the millennial audience is definitely our kind of key focus um, because ultimately if you're you're buying products for your home, um, you know, you, you'll probably have just bought your own home or maybe you're renting kind of property for the first time or maybe just at kind of university. So I think we're, we're very much still talking about kind of the millennial audience. Mm. Yeah, same. Good. Oh, well, we'll have to do a separate Gen Z uh, edition at some point. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, guys, thanks so much for that. Uh, I think what's interesting for me is that as we do each of the podcasts, we come across people who've got so much pride in the products they're doing and the way of doing business and the innovation as well. So it's just very, very positive. So thank you both for sharing your brand stories and your activities with us. That's absolutely fascinating. Emma, Jamie, thank you both as well. And so, dear listener, goodbye until our next episode. Good. Hey, that was great. I tried to do a deal with you actually when I was at Tate because we were really jealous of your TFL ah, posters. Yeah. Um, but I think the difference was <laughs> that um, TFL own all the rights to their images, whereas we didn't. And when she brought in all the royalties, like the margins just didn't work yes. out. But we enjoyed talking to your team. Yes, New York. I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought the one I like is the one in Amsterdam. Yours is not a partnership, I guess. But I always thought it was a brilliant idea, you know, as you go down those travelators and the longest walk in, the, in the, what seems like the biggest airport in the world. Yeah, Schiphol. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There's that little area. Yeah. Which I've so now seen. I don't really notice so much now, but I first thought, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. No, that was, I mean, <laughs> you know, trying to find those kind of lovely, unique opportunities yeah. is important. And actually very similar to what you were saying. It, it doesn't need to be in the highest kind of footfall area or whatever. Yep. It needs to either have that element of surprise mm. or we're very happy to drive people to kind of the, the store. So it can't be inconvenient for the customer, that's mm. for sure. It has to be a good experience to get there. And certainly when we opened our first showroom in Notting Hill, the location was good, but it was actually pretty, you know, tricky to get yeah. in there because it was in our office building. And that was fine <laughs> was when we were two years old. It was interesting. <laughs> um, that's fine when you're yeah. two, right? But now that we're eight, you know, it actually needs to be, you know, a grown-up good experience for people. Yeah. And whilst we're not in the kind of like main kind of stretch in in, in London, we're in Soho, which is brilliantly mm. located, and it's a and it's a beautiful space. And I think Skipple is similar to that. It's right. kind of got that element of surprise. It's in a kind of good location Brilliant um, mm. so yeah so the more opportunities we combine like that but they're kind of opportunistic you know opportunities there so it's, it's harder to come across them i guess <laughs> yeah. oh well fingers crossed hey let's come across some coffees then let's, let's do that lovely hey thanks again guys Pleasure.